Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, today is April 20th, and we're here for our New York webinar. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about employee status uh, in New York. I'm going to talk about a recent case on employee status. I'm also going to talk about uh, recent events. Uh, so I am going to talk about the COVID-19 pending legislation and what we're seeing here. Happy to answer any questions about that. I'm going to talk very briefly about some firm news and one major change that's going to affect you. Uh, I'm going to talk about, uh, of course, the case law and try to give uh, some practical updates and takeaways for everyone, as usual. Uh, just a reminder, this is completely and totally live, so uh, please feel free to type your questions into me, and I will try to answer as many questions as I can at the end of the presentation. As always, I will not be saying your full name. I'll just say your first name. I'll repeat the question so everybody in the audience can hear it, and I'll do my best to give you the best answer I can. All right, I'm hoping if you're coming to our webinar series, you're aware of our handbooks. You have a copy of either our New York or New Jersey, or perhaps our new construction defense practice handbook. If you don't have a copy of one of our handbooks yet, please let me know. You can download them immediately from the website, or we can send you out a hard copy if that's what you prefer. We also have a Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation Defense Handbook, which is available on the firm website. Our new monthly schedule for webinars, and this began in January, is the first Monday of the month is our construction defense webinar. Uh, second Monday of the month is our risk transfer webinar uh, led by Chris Major, also sometimes called the Major Monday webinar. Uh, third Monday of the month, and that's today, is our New York Workers' Compensation Defense-focused webinar. And the last Friday or the fourth Friday of the month is our New Jersey Workers' Compensation Defense webinar. Now, uh, I also want to bring to your attention that if you're getting emails from my firm, if you're currently working with us, you're seeing a whole new email standard come out from us today. Uh, all of our emails look the same moving forward. Uh, you'll see the sender's uh, information, contact stuff, that's all the same, disclaimer, the same. Uh, what's new is that line of buttons on the bottom, and I want my clients to take advantage of those buttons. Uh, those button buttons allow you to do everything from one click, refer a new file, one click, answer or ask a general question, which will go to my partner, John, or myself, and we'll be able to provide you with a quick answer if you have a general question. It's not related to any specific case. Uh, and the last button, I think, is the most important button. Uh, there's also a button for uh, immediately downloading a, uh, a book or one of our publications and also a button to join these webinar series. So you could just forward these emails to maybe someone in your organization who should be coming to our webinars or needs a copy of our book. Uh, that's something easy you can do. But the last button uh, is so that uh, for our clients to fill out performance and survey uh, uh, questions about our handling attorneys and our handling paralegals. So if you click that last button in any of our emails, it'll take you immediately to a customer satisfaction survey. You can rate the attorney, rate the paralegal. You can talk about what's bothering you. If you want me to directly get involved, I'm happy to do that. And so we're trying to really up our communications game and get more feedback from our clients. So if you are currently working with us, I, I urge you, uh, give us some of those surveys and some of that feedback. Also, if you're a client today and tomorrow, you'll be getting our dashboard uh, reports that we send you every quarter. Uh, we send our own metrics out to our clients every quarter. Uh, so you should be getting those soon uh, today and tomorrow. All right, quick COVID-19 update. Uh, you may have or may not have heard uh, that our whole nation is on some kind of house arrest at this point uh, because somebody maybe somewhere might get sick. Now, in New York, it has been quite serious and significant. There have been a lot of uh, uh, cases and unfortunately, a lot of death. 
New Jersey is the second uh, hardest hit state of all the states, obviously, because most people who live in New Jersey just commute across a bridge or a river and go and work in New York. And so these two states have been pretty hard hit. I can tell you on the ground, uh, there is uh, no real end in sight to the uh, the uh, quarantine in place or stay at home orders. Uh, my kids are out of school. They've told us we have at least another month of no school. It seems to me at this point, no school is ever going to happen again for the kids in New Jersey. New York City, of course, has already canceled school for the rest of the year. So pretty sad. Now, I did send out an email last week to my clients letting them know that we are tracking specific litigation that is pending in both states. In both states, there has been uh, COVID-19 uh, related legislation that has been suggested that would change the presumption in New York and New Jersey workers' compensation cases. And the, both uh, New Jersey's uh, Senate Bill 2380 uh, and New York says essentially the, the following. Anyone who is deemed to be working in an essential capacity uh, should they develop COVID-19 or have the infection, that would be presumed compensable. That's very similar to what's passed already in Illinois, which is, as far as I know, the only state that's passed this kind of silly-hearted legislation. Uh, but it is not passed in New York. It doesn't seem like it's going to. New Jersey was considering it all week last week, and there is no uh, determination. It has not passed in either state. So it's important for my clients to know uh, there is no new legislation. They have not changed the presumption. Of course, uh, the board chair has sent this very nice but quite silly-hearted little letter to all of the carriers employers in New York saying, well, you know, these aren't really compensable. Could you please just out of the goodness of your heart start accepting COVID-19 cases? Uh, now, we've been giving our clients guidance about that ever since that letter came out last week saying, nope, that's a nice uh, sentiment. And it's nice to be sympathetic uh, towards people, but that doesn't mean that the law has changed and that you have to accept these cases as compensable. Our guidance remains the same. Uh, in a COVID-19 case, if there has been a discrete, specific, traumatic, clear event that led to an infection and illness, probably going to be determined to be compensable. However, if you have just the, I was going to work and now I'm sick and there was somebody else there that might have been sick, that's not going to be enough. Those occupational exposures, occupational infection claims, we strongly recommend be disputed and challenged and you have good defenses to that. Case level update on COVID-19. Yep, they're starting to come in. Uh, we are defending COVID-19 cases now in New York and New Jersey. Uh, we're really treating them just as we would treat any other occupational infection case. The burden of proof is on the claimant in New York or the petitioner in New Jersey to show that there was some type of specific traumatic exposure. Uh, the number one question that we've been asking uh, claimants and petitioners is, anybody else in your household sick? When were they diagnosed? Uh, we're learning that uh, their wives or husbands, for example, have been diagnosed ahead of them, which really clearly challenges that causal link. The other question we're asking, which is bearing some good fruit, is do you have another job? Because we're learning that a lot of, and particularly first responders, have second and third jobs, which have also exposed them to the uh, potential for infection. And of course, given the prevalence and uh, the fact that apparently 20 to 30 percent of people may have the uh, a positive test but be asymptomatic, we are putting uh, petitioners and claimants to the proofs in this respect. If you have any other questions about COVID-19, I'm happy to answer them at the end. Uh, you can bring them, you can start typing them in now. And again, I'll try to answer as many as I can. All right, today our topic, and remember our workers' compensation webinar series basically follows the chapters of my book. So we're now into the chapter that deals with who is and who is not an employee. Because remember, uh, in order to uh, receive a workers' compensation benefit, step one is you have to be employed. 
uh, right? And so challenging employment or determining if this person is really my employee or it's really somebody else's employee, it's an important part of the defense of these cases. So let's talk a little bit about the legal standard. Now in New York, the, uh, the definition of employee is in section two, subsection three of the workers' compensation statute, but essentially it says, anyone who is providing a service to a, a for-profit business is gonna be the employee of that business. Uh, the easiest way for a claimant uh, to show that they're an employee is to show some kind of paycheck or pay stub. Of course, if they get injured in the first hour of their new, brand new job, still gonna be compensable. Uh, so oftentimes you won't have a complete work, uh, work week or pay uh, payment uh, yet. But usually we're looking for a pay stub, we're looking for a paycheck, something to prove that they were actually associated with that business. Now, uh, what about people, Greg, that are illegally in, in this country, who are, what you know, Greg, you call them pre-citizens, they have no legal employment status and they get injured working someplace, what about them? And the answer is they are treated just like employees. Uh, they do not, uh, the, the law does not want to benefit anybody who would be engaging in illegal employments. So yes, it's true. Uh, your day laborers, your pre-citizens, your undocumented, your illegal employments, they're all going to fall under workers' compensation benefits. Now, who is not an employee? Uh, pretty much anybody who's working for a for-profit business who's collecting a wage and doing something to further that business is going to be found to be an employee of that business. But who is it? So the first is students, interns, they're specifically excluded by the statute. Volunteers, that would be somebody who's working in a volunteer capacity um, for a volunteer or, or volunteering their time, even if they're compensated. Sole proprietors, right? So these are business owners who have elected out of workers' compensation because they have a choice. I'm always quite skeptical, by the way, of workers' compensation claims made by sole proprietors, and particularly those at the end of their career trying to maybe sell their business. So those are big red flags to me. And of course, independent contractors are not employees. And I'm going to talk about what is the definition of independent contractor in a second. Finally, truckers uh, who have their own bill of lading and their own Department of Transportation identification numbers. Uh, and of course, who have their own workers' compensation insurance or accident insurance, uh, ACOC policies, for example, will generally not found to be employees. Now, truckers are kind of a difficult group, and I'm going to talk about them when we talk about independent contractors in a second. Uh, let's quickly talk about interesting case law that grew uh, or developed in October of last year surrounding employment status. And I'm going to pose a little bit of a question here to make this some fun. You, while you're watching and listening, I uh, should be thinking, would I accept this case or not? So the case is Morrow versus Red Cross. Uh, Morrow, a uh, lady, uh, was an employee of a renovation company. This is a case that was de decided by the appellate division in October of 2019. She was an employee of a restoration company, and as part of her job there, uh, they wanted to support and engage their employees in the community. And they told employees, hey, if you want to volunteer uh, for some place, uh, some nice charity, uh, we're going to pay you your full wage while you volunteer because you know what? Oh, we're nice guys. So she became a volunteer community ambassador for the Red Cross. Uh, and in that role, she would provide services to Red Cross beneficiaries. Again, she is getting paid by the company she works for, but she's actually volunteering her time for another company. She gets injured while doing work for the Red Cross. Uh, she was pushing a cart and something happened where her hand got smashed in by the cart. Um, now she was, again, working at the Red Cross when the hand smash occurred. Again, she's getting paid by the restoration company. She brings a case, a claim against the restoration company and a claim against the Red Cross. Are any of these claims compensable? Answer, none of the claims are compensable. Bringing a case against her own employer 
didn't work. Uh, she clearly wasn't working there at the time of loss. Of course, she's getting paid by the employer, and that's what she argued. She said, I was working for the Red Cross, but my employer really wanted me to do it. They really wanted to really be out there and be helping in the uh, you know the community. And here I am providing the service. And by the way, Judge, I'm getting paid my full wage by the restoration company. So really, isn't this work for the Red Cross? Shouldn't that be deemed like my job? Uh, the court uh, found no, absolutely not. Uh, you were volunteering. Nobody told you that you had to do that. It's really nice that they were paying you wages, but you weren't required to go do that volunteer activity. And the second part of that was the appellate division that affirmed the workers' compensation law judge, the trial judge, in finding that this was not a compensable covered activity. So that was an interesting new case, or relatively new, recent case at least, on volunteers and whether or not a paid volunteer uh, is entitled to the employment status under the workers' compensation law. So interesting. All right, uh, how about uh, dual employment? This happens all the time. Uh, we see a lot of dual employment scenarios where we have lent or leased employees, employees of a PEO, temporary employees, temps who are placed in another business, the question becomes, uh, does New York recognize dual employment? Can the worker who's injured while working as a temp bring a claim against the temp agency as well as the direct employer? Uh, how about contractors and subcontractors? So in the case of leased or lent employees, in general, New York will find dual employment. They'll say you could bring a workers' compensation claim against either the, uh, the leasing company or the company that's lending you out or the place where you're actually doing the work because they're directing and controlling your debt. Same thing with contractor and subcontractor. A subcontractor's employees will be found to be essentially the employees of the contractor if the subcontractor doesn't have workers' compensation coverage. That employment exposure will travel up to the contractor, uh, the general contractor. Uh, the question that the court's always going to look at is who is directing and controlling the employee if there's ever a question about who is the correct employer. And that's also the key question that the courts are going to ask about independent contractors. They're going to say, who has the right to direct and control? So in order to be found an independent contractor, the alleged employer is going to have to be shown to have no control or direction over how they carry about their work and how they do their daily uh, job. In particular, the court's going to look at whether or not the alleged employer has the ability to hire or fire the employees of the alleged independent contractor or the independent contractor themselves. The second thing the court's going to look at is are these two businesses different? Is this a landscaping company that has people doing landscaping work for them that they're attempting to characterize as not employees of the landscaping company, but somehow some independent contractor? Not really, because if really they're only providing service to this one company, isn't it really the same business? So the court's going to look to that next. They want to look at different business names, different business entities, different state registrations. Uh, we're going to look at was there an actual different business formed, registered, licensed in that state. Uh, the next thing the court's going to look at is did that employee, the alleged independent contractor, control and direct their own work? Did they bring their own materials? Did they bring their own tools? Were there any special materials or tools that they were relying on that they brought to the work site? That's going to be an issue that they're actually an independent contractor. And how about this? The courts will generally say, wait, does this other entity that's alleged to be an independent contractor actually have its own workers' compensation coverage for its own employees? And the court will weigh whether or not they do. So those are some of the factors that the courts will look at, the appellate division will look at in determining if an independent contractor is really an employee for workers' compensation benefit purposes. All right. I'm hoping that there's some good questions for me today. 
Uh, again, if you haven't typed in your question yet, you can type it in now and I'll answer as many as I possibly can. I'm interested in seeing if anybody has any questions about COVID-19, uh, any particular claims they're seeing, or uh, questions about employment status or utilizing employment as a defense. So let's come over here and take a look at the questions. Again, if you haven't typed yours in yet, uh, let's do this. Let's type them in. All right. Jill asked the question, with regards to a school district, are student teachers and interns the same thing? No. Uh, if they're getting paid, uh, and I don't know if student teachers are or are not getting paid for their work, they are going to be found to be the employee of the school district. However, if they are unpaid student interns doing things essentially on a volunteer basis in order to get work experience, in general, they will not be found to be uh, employees uh, of the entity. So I think we need to look at whether or not they're being paid and then if they can be compared either closer to a volunteer or more to a student intern who is, again, someone who would generally not, uh, generally be excluded from workers' compensation coverage in New York. All right, I don't know if anybody else is typing in questions, but that's the only one I got today. And we've talked about some kind of interesting stuff, so I'm hoping that there may be some more questions. If you do have a question that I haven't responded to or you're typing it in fast and just hasn't popped up on my screen, you can always email me after. All right. Miriam asked the question, Greg, we have a claim for a volunteer firefighter who was injured working a fundraiser for the fire company, but is also the sole proprietor of his own company. He undergoes sur so shoulder surgery, sorry, it's like a tongue twister, due to aggravation of his pre-existing condition. At what point can we retire, return to work light duty, which is completely self-limited? Okay, so this is like an interesting compound question, okay? Uh, so first, Volunteer firefighter injured while working for a fundraiser in general, not going to be compensable. It's a volunteer activity. And generally speaking, we would dispute those. Next, we've learned he's also the sole proprietor of his own company. So I hope that's raising a lot of red flags up in the air. Did he injure himself uh, while working for his own company as a sole proprietor and just said, hey, I'm going to pass this along as a volunteer firefighter uh, claim? Because Believe me, a lot of them do that. Uh, that's something to be really looking into. I would really wanting to do a little investigation into that. To me, that's a huge red flag. Next, you're telling me he's had sh shoulder surgery and it's due to an aggravation of a pre-existing condition. Uh, okay, again, another huge red flag here. Uh, I would want to look back at the prior medicals and say, hey, was he ever suggested that he undergo the sur surgery before, et cetera? You know, kind of really figure out what was the medical status prior to this alleged aggravation. The final part of this question. Uh, is at what point can we retire, require return to work light duty because it's self-limited. He works for himself. He could essentially say, I have no light duty. There is none. At that point, when you have a sole proprietor, what we're going to look to essentially is to the medicals. And I think you need to get an IME. Of course, it's impossible to get a good IME right now, an in-person IME with a physical examination because they're just not holding them right now. Uh, but you really need that. And what I would do is then try to reduce the benefit to essentially whatever the IME says his residual work capacity is. And I would make the argument that, Judge, the reason he's not working is because it's completely self-limited. He controls whether or not he has light duty. He controls whether he can go out and maybe give estimates or do some planning or he can purchase things or he can you know, do other things that further his business. So that's the challenge. But again, those are some tough, tough situations. Okay, Mary asked a question, and this is a good one, and it's actually come up. I've been answering, answering a lot of these traveling nurse questions. She goes, Greg, can you discuss per diem nurses, nurses who travel in from another state into New York for COVID-19 coverage? Are they covered under workers' compensation policy from their out-of-state employer? Okay, so this is interesting. In fact, I've dealt with this this week uh, with an employer who had about 100 employees, 
and they moved from their home state, they were put on planes, flown to New York, put up in hotels, and they've been providing services to New York hospitals. Obviously, New York's borne the brunt of this coronavirus outbreak. Uh, most of the cases are in New York, all the treatments in New York. Of course, they're trying to figure out how to care for these people. And a lot of temp companies have come up and said, hey, we've got uh, a nurse over here in Illinois, or a nurse in Michigan, Mississippi. We're gonna fly them all in, and they're paying these people enormous rates, 80, 90, $100 an hour. And they're also guaranteeing them 80, 90 hours a week of employment. So we're talking about very high wage earners who all of a sudden are making $10,000 a week uh, being flown into New York, and that's why they're doing it. So the question is, which state laws workers' compensation coverage applies? And there is a lot of challenge in figuring that out because first of all, when they were actually exposed, is unknown, right? I mean, we're making this big presumption, which is, hey, I was exposed to coronavirus when I was here in New York and providing care to people in New York. But really nobody knows. I mean, the incubation period of this, really unknown. So the question is, did they get it in Mississippi or did they get it in New York when a week later they were having symptoms and had a fever and had a dry cough, et cetera, all the other signs of the Chinese coronavirus? When was that? And the answer is, uh, so the first, the first question I have is, when, where did the symptoms manifest and emerge? Was there any specific traumatic loss in New York? And the reason I'm asking that question is because it's, it's absolutely gonna have jurisdiction, at least in New York, if the injury occurred in New York. So the infection, the discrete traumatic accident leading to infection occurred in New York. If they can point to that, New York will have jurisdiction. Will the other state have jurisdiction? Yeah, generally, most states' workers' compensation uh, laws state that if you are hired out of a state and you are a resident of that state, that state retains jurisdiction over any workers' compensation claim you may have because the state has a vested interest in making sure that its residents and people that are being called out and hired out of that state at least get the benefit of their own home state law. So in general, if your uh, employee was hot, was called by phone, even called by from a New York employer, but their home in that state, in general, that state's uh, workers' compensation coverage could apply. So you could have a situation where for the Mississippi worker who's hired uh, out of their home state, flown to New York, uh, brought into New York, exposed to something infectious and falls ill, they may have a, a claim in both jurisdictions. Now, New York absolutely allows that. Our workers' compensation law in New York allows it. Incidentally, so does New Jersey. They don't care if you have five workers' compensation claims pending in every state. Under New York or New Jersey law, the workers' compensation claimant gets the benefit of whatever state pays the highest, and the other state uh, would get a credit for what's being paid in the, the, the other concurrent jurisdiction. So it can absolutely happen that you have a workers' compensation claim back in your home state, and you would have a New York claim because you were brought into the state and this is where you're alleging you're actually infected. Now, the employer still has all the standard defenses to an infection claim, which is show me the discre discrete, traumatic, specific uh, way uh, where you were uh, exposed to this infectious material. So in other words, you still have your causal relationship defenses. Um, you know, in the medical scenario, of course, they're going to probably have an easier time saying, well, a, a patient got combative, they pulled down my mask, and they coughed in my face. All right, they're going to probably be able to show that. Uh, but for most other workers, they're not going to really be able to show any specific or discrete claim. And so, again, our guidance on that are generally to dispute those. All right, so great question. Thanks, Mary, for that one. And it's definitely one that we've been seeing and answering for people. Uh, all right, that's the last question I have here. I want to thank everybody who came and everybody who asked a question, make it a lot more fun when you do that. So thank you. Um, 
All right, new monthly schedule, just as a reminder, first Monday of the month, construction. Second Monday of the month, risk transfer. Third Monday of the month, that's today, New York workers' compensation. And next week on Monday, we'll be talking about New Jersey workers' compensation. Next time we'll be meeting uh, for this New York discussion will be May 18th. In the meantime, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, compliments, uh, please call me, email me, text me. We are fully up and running. Uh, we are answering the phones and everybody's at work. Uh, we have 29 attorneys. We are still appearing in courts everywhere we can. New York, 100% virtual. New Jersey, we are appearing as best we can, typically telephone conference, although we are trying to set up video conferences or offering at least video conferences, though a lot of our opposing counsel are not taking advantage of that. All right, everybody, hope you have a great week. Stay safe. See you next time. Bye.